Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Good morning. Good to see you all. Good to be with you. It's the third Sunday of Advent, as Jared mentioned earlier, and um, I have grown to really love the season of Advent. I often um, think about the tension, though, of how I want to observe this season and dive into it and pursue quiet and solitude and reflection, but um, Advent is in the culture that we live in where things are packed so full such a fast pace, and one um, author talking about the season of Advent uh, said, the way that we protest against the culture that we live in of this overburdened, fast-paced, tapped out, out of gas culture is we observe a holy Advent. Today is called Gaudette Sunday. It's the Sunday in which pink is the dominant color. It's also Barbie Sunday. For those of you who were wondering, um, in Latin, the word joy is gaudir, and so this is often referred to as gaudet Sunday, or as Zach says, gaudete, right? It's got a little bit more flair than my Oklahoma accent. Gaudete, all right, forget about it. Um, It's the season that we are learning to wait, and today we're going to see in Psalm 126, It's also the season in which we cry out to God that he would restore us. The theme that we've been looking through in the season of Advent here is the uh, Psalms that include this great phrase, restoration, or as we'll learn, turning. Um, The season of Advent also has these two major things going on for us. And as you probably heard said, I like to say it too, that we live between these two advents, Jesus who came once and began in fullness. This is why John the Baptist would say, look at the bride, uh, the groom here, um, that Jesus has come and reversed the curse, the curse that exists in us and on us and in this world. Jesus is reversing it in his first coming. And then secondly, he will come again, which is the hope of us as believers to restore all things fully. And as the book of Revelation says, there will be no more tears or pain or sadness or sorrow. These things will be former and they will be passed away. Um, I am not a handy person at all. I can fix a cup of coffee. (laughs) Angela Kay actually downloaded an app and fixed our washing machine. And yes. It was impressive. Um, it really was. And it costs like $25. That's amazing. Usually it's $500. Um, we live in a day in which it is more, it, it's easier to replace things than to restore them. I marvel at people who can take something old and make it new again. Our neighbor, new neighbor that moved in, has four. I think four, three or four Nissan 300Z cars. These are early 90s, late 80s cars parked in his driveway, and he just loves to fix them up and make them new again, give them away. 
So hopefully he'll give me one um, if I'm nice enough. We're reading through the Psalms and we're considering today this concept and this great cry of the psalmist to restore our fortunes. So let's pray as we begin. We pray, Lord, that it would rain in our hearts as we are a people who need restoration. We live in a dry and weary land. And we are desperate for your touch, your voice, and your presence. That today, even in this service, you would restore our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. Your promise to us that you have restored your people's fortunes in the days past. Restore us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Psalm 126, you're welcome to take out your Bible, device, whatever it is, the restoration of God. One of the things that I find um, so important um, for the Psalms and for us as Christians to have a diet of the Psalms, sort of like the doctor says, eat your vegetables and that sort of thing. But the Psalms are that place in the scriptures that reflect the whole human experience as we Um, encounter God, and as we live in this world, the Psalms give voice to the things of our heart that we often experience. It's not to say the rest of the Bible doesn't do that, but it doesn't do that in the full, rich, robust nature that we see in the book of Psalms. And I would just commend this to you in the Anglican way of, um, of a daily Bible reading plan. We want everyone to get through the Bible, most of it, in about a year, but the Psalms are assigned on a daily basis in such a way that after a year, you will have read every Psalm 12 times in a whole year. Why the Psalms over the other passages of Scripture? Because the Psalms help us as men and women to know God's promises, our experience, and how he is faithful to us. That's the beauty of them. Psalm 126 is a song of ascent. It's a song that the people of God would sing. Um, They would memorize the set of psalms. They would sing them as they entered into Jerusalem and went up on their way to a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Psalm 126 is often called a pilgrim's psalm. And it is a great chorus of the people of God. Of course, we don't sing the Psalms this way, but we ought to consider them this way. So let's start in verse one. When the Lord, when, looking past, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, Zion is the affectionate name for Jerusalem, often even the people of God. We were like those who dream. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, looking on, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. This is a past event. This is the way that the psalmist is directing us to see, looking backwards at what God has done. One business leader once wrote, I think um, it was P. 
Peter Drucker and a guy named John Maxwell uh, sort of made it famous what Drucker said, that um, past performance is a future predictor of behavior. So if you want to know how things will work out in the future, or if you want to know how someone is likely to be in the future, you look in the past. Now, that's certainly a very jilted and maybe pessimistic view, but it shows us that God has acted faithfully in the past. And if he's acted faithfully in the past this way, he will act this way again to us. So if he's restored Zion, then we can cry out to him, as we'll see, to restore us. Because his past behavior shows his character and his actions. The closest thing I can think of to help us understand this is when we see a natural disaster come like a hurricane and houses are rebuilt and things over time are restored. But for Israel in 586 BC, the nation of Babylon prophesied nearly 100 years, 150 years in advance, came to Jerusalem and devastated them. And the devastation was utterly complete. They knocked down everything, including the walls, the temple. They took the best of things of value, people and treasures away. And for 70 years, the people of God lived in exile. Many Christian leaders would say, this is actually a foretaste of how we are ought to live ourselves. We are not citizens of this world. We are at one level in exile. Our home is another home to come. So to look at this is also help for us, helpful for us to connect with today. But imagine what with me what this would feel like if everything that you knew, everything that was of your culture, everything of value was utterly destroyed and taken away. During World War II, nearly 60 million men, women, and children lost their lives. It was in the 1940s, the mid-1940s, that another word appeared in the language of news and university settings, and that was a displaced person. We often say that today as refugees. There were millions of people who were displaced, who left their homes, who were forced out of places. In fact, the hatred of Europe for Germany was so intense that many nations around Germany kicked people of German descent out after the war and sent them back to Germany. Places in Germany of housing and buildings and factories were destroyed. 70% of the homes in Germany were devastated. In the former Soviet Union, 1,700 towns, places that existed on a map, as well as 70,000 villages were wiped away. Factories and workshops were in ruins. For a period of years, they said, uh, people speculating said, most Europeans lived on 1,000 calories per day for a number of years. In fact, their story of people in Netherlands eating tulip bulbs, which are one of the popular flowers of Holland and Netherlands. Apart from the United States and allies such as Canada and Australia, most of the known modern developed world lay in utter devastation. 
And the four horsemen of the apocalypse, pestilence, war, famine, and death, so familiar during times ago, the Middle Ages, appeared once again in the modern world. For the people of God in Israel, their city, their towns, their countryside was ruined. The walls of their city lay in waste, and the walls of the city are probably the second most important resource a place can have besides water. But if you look at Europe today, the last 70 years, ironic, it's a number parallel to Israel's exile, has been a remarkable turnaround, that Europe is the coveted destination for everyone to go to today. Imagine being a child of the 1940s. My mom was born in 1943 and visiting Europe today and knowing all that had been restored there. In this psalm of ascents, it is what we call a post-exilic psalm. It's after the exile, after the people of Israel returned from Babylon. And they're singing this song knowing that God had remarkably restored them. Listen to the message version of the Bible that translate this, translate this passage. And I, I really like this translation. It's helpful to see the joy in it. It seemed like a dream, too good to be true, when God returned Zion's exiles. Too good to be true. These things don't happen. We laughed, we sang, we couldn't believe our good fortune. We were the talk of the nations. God was wonderful to them. God was wonderful to us. We are one happy people. See, friends, in history, when most civilizations die, they die. You might be able to go see them in museums, but they are a former of the previous glory. They go away. But for the people of God, they watch God's providential hand in human history to restore them. In one of the most amazing turnarounds, Israel came back again. In the last 20 years, biblical scholarship has, has really focused on a lot of writings that are being discovered and rediscovered in Babylon. The Babylonians produced lots of documentation. They were tremendous administrators. But the, doc, the documentation of the people of God, especially Israel, is contained in the Psalms. You see, the people of Israel have songs declaring their desire to go home. Psalm 137 says, By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. Psalm 137, the Psalms are not arranged by chronology, of course. Psalm 137 are, are people who are exiles sitting in Babylon and it's painfully aware that they have lost their home. They've lost their fortunes. They are exiles in the great city of Babylon. And they're looking at the Tigris and the Euphrates River and the power and the glory of Babylon. And they're weeping at things formerly lost. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. What happened between Psalm 137 and Psalm 126 is God's amazing act of restoration. 
he restored Israel. And the psalmist is beckoning us to remember this as we cry out to God. When have you personally seen devastation? When have you seen something devastated? Maybe it's your life, your heart, a city. Restoration, however, brings joy. This is the promise of God. The second part of this psalm is people remembering what God has done in history past. And so you see this psalm is written not just for the the post-exiles, but is written for us today to remember God's power of restoration. And the psalmist declares, if he could do that then, he can do that even today, even this morning. The psalmist writes, restore our fortunes, O Lord. The first four verses, remembering what God did when he restored Zion. And now he turns it personal. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. In this most poetic and beautiful verse, Psalm uh, 126.5, those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Think about that for a second. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. What is the cry of this psalmist? Restore our hearts. Restore us, O Lord. If you could do that to Zion, then you can do that to us today. James Boyce was the pastor of um, Presbyterian uh, Church in Philadelphia. I've never heard about third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth, but there's a tenth Presbyterian church, and he served there for decades. And he writes this regarding Psalm 126. He says, For the psalmist, the writer of this psalm, as for us, memory of the past could become mere nostalgia. Those were the best of days, we say. Wonderful, but gone forever. In Psalm 126, the memory of those singing, laughter-filled days of the past becomes not nostalgia, but the ground of a strong hope for even better days to come. This is why this psalm, although sober and solemn, points us to greater hope. We've heard for three weeks in a row this word shuv, to turn. It is all over the Old Testament. God turns his face to us. It's the same word that we hear of Job when he's restored at the end of the book of Job, that God turns or restores him. The the great blessing of Numbers chapter 6 says this, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face to you and give you peace. This word is all over the place. The Lord turn to us. This is why the psalmist is actually saying, Lord, you turned to the people of Zion in the past and you made things new in them and with them. Turn to us. Also, 
This is certainly a very daring and bold, audacious prayer. This psalm can be reduced this way, simply put. Lord, you turned to Zion, now turn to me. If you could do that for them, won't you do that for me today? That's a bold prayer. I like what Judson said in the first week, December 3rd. He said, our prayers are often so boring. When do we cry out to the Lord? Lord, restore me. Turn your face to me. I am empty and I'm dry and I'm weary and I need you to restore me. That's the kind of prayer, daring prayer, that the psalmist is beckoning us to pray. You know, it's tempting to think if we could just get to dot, 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 fill in the blank stage of life, all of our problems would go away or we'd be happy and we'd be content. But we, friends, are dry and weary. We're tired and we're running out of gasoline. We're thirsty and we're hungry, and yet we have plenty of food. It's amazing. We have everything. We're so bored with everything. So much more than people have ever had in human history. And you would think that we have nothing. How desperate am I for God? Or am I more desperate for comfort and happiness? So in this temptation that we can arrive, we will play these scenarios out in our head. If I could just get to fill in the blank. If I could just get out of high school. If I could just get a job. If I could just find that person. If I could just have that house. If I could just, you fill in the blank, but none of them ever satisfy. Nor could they, nor are they designed to. They are good things, but not ultimate things. The psalmist says, restore our fortunes. He's not talking about temporal financial prosperity. He's talking about the coming of God's kingdom. In the most beautiful, poetic, and profound way, we're given this phrase that I mentioned earlier. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. The most, honorable and, the most honest and vulnerable thing is to sow with tears, to cry and to cry out. You know, you may think, but how long, O oh Lord? Maybe you fill up jars with your tears. But the psalmist tells us something that I think should anchor us. Those who sow in tears will reap in joy. I want to close with this summary of Psalm 126 and help us try to understand the point of what the psalmist is driving us to. So again, first, we know that you've restored your people in the past, O Lord, and it's amazing. We trust that you have the ability to restore things. And when that happens, it's amazing. But secondly, then restore us. If you can do that then, and you can do that for them, then do that to me today. A few years ago, I watched a video um, from Texas of a flash flood. It rained eight inches in just a few short hours, and um, it had been in a time after about two years of drought. And this dead, 
dry, parched land turns into rivers of immense power. Houses were underwater. Cars were floating. It was just amazing how in just a short amount of time, these rivers of water that no place could handle came on the scene. This is a picture of what the psalmist is saying. If you sow in tears, you get flash floods in the Negev. The Negev is a place that for most of the year, 10 to 12 months, the land is so dry that it's hard and crunchy. And the water that comes into the Negev is like water being rushed onto concrete. It just forms this major flash flood. The psalmist is saying in a metaphor that if we sow in tears, if we cry out to the Lord, he sends flash floods of restoration into our hearts. I have a friend who I've um, talked to a lot with the last couple of years. He's an attorney, um, and he works in a particular field of legal work where he sees the worst of humanity. And he said, I used to get so angry and disillusioned and depressed. And he said, I would come and I would describe my job and the things that I've seen with much more colorful words. And he said, I would rage and I would complain. But he said, I've learned to see that this is not the way things should be. The ways of this world are not the ways that things should be. And I've learned to sow with tears. Those who sow with tears will reap in joy. If you want the rivers of Negev in your heart, you have to cry out to the Lord. And if you cry out to the Lord and you sow with tears, you will reap with joy. When I was uh, made a bishop in the church, there was a lot of gifts given. I think we should have a reunion of that every year, just like <laughs> new gifts. Um, I'm just kidding. I'm grateful for everything that was given. So, so much of it is so meaningful. Um, but one of the bishops who came here, he was made a bishop by the Archbishop of Southeast Asia. And this uh, Archbishop was a man who suffered under um, the communist regime. And the stole these things that he presented to this bishop and a group of other bishops had uh, Mandarin writing on it. And on one side, it said, those who sow in tears. And the other side, it says, will reap in joy. And, um, you know, maybe in your life, you get close envy of other people. Clergy get stole envy. Um, and so... I just remember seeing that consecration service and he would wear that stole occasionally in places. And I thought, man, that's the stole I really want. And so I'm sitting by him and he said, Alan, he said, I'm here tonight, but I didn't bring a gift. Is there anything that you want? And I said, I really like your stole, but I didn't say I want your stole. Uh, that would be too daring and too presumptuous, right? And he goes, oh my goodness, I want you to have this soul. As a reminder, and a reminder for us out of Psalm 126, those who sow in tears, brothers and sisters, you will reap in joy.
In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.